We are two years post the beginning of COVID. I'm beginning to hear the phrase back to normal happening around me. And of course, many of us are resuming some of our pre-COVID patterns, eating in restaurants, traveling, uh, not wearing masks all the time. But lurking somewhere under normal is the realization that many things are not the same. So leading the charge on the podcast today is Brooke Bergman Parr. She's one of the staff members at Zen Founder, and she has a special magic with founder relationships. She helps entrepreneurs in their primary relationships with their significant others and in their business relationships with their co-founders. I'm very, very happy that she is part of the Zen Founder team. And she is jumping in today with a conversation about how two years of pandemic have changed romance, have changed romantic relationships. If this conversation is interesting to you, wanted to put on your radar that Brooke and I are co-hosting a retreat for entrepreneur couples. This will take place, COVID willing, <laughs> December 2022 on the island of Kauai. We are super excited about this event. And for more information, you can check out zenfounder.com or sherrywalling.com and uh, learn more about it. Let us know if you're interested in joining us. In the meantime, here is the wisdom and gracious insight of Brooke Bergman Parr. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Hello, Zen Founder listeners. I'm Brooke Bergman Parr, one of the coaches at Zen Founder and relationship specialist. I'm delighted and honored to have you listening today. As we mark the two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic and quarantine, I thought I would share some reflections on the state of our relationships. The state of our relationships has a direct correlation to our mental health, the health of our bodies, and the health of our companies. And it is my life's work to help people have more meaningful and connected relationships. And during this time, I was honored to be invited into the sacred space of love and relationships. I was invited into people's living rooms, into their car offices, into whatever corner of the house they could find to themselves Sometimes it was outside. Sometimes I did walk and talks with those who were local. Whatever the situation, I was invited into the intimacy of people's lives in a way that I hadn't been before the pandemic. And I was charged during this time as a therapist uh, with helping couples, individuals, families, and workplaces adjust to a pretty new reality to create 
entirely new systems of relating as the foundation beneath us crumbled. I think it's relevant to note here that I was also at this time experiencing the same dismantling of those very systems. And so I was walking alongside you all, learning the very same lessons as I was also trying to share the wisdom that I have garnered over the years from the work that I do. You know, I've worked with folks uh, through some pretty serious traumatic events and losses. And there is some age-old wisdom about how to help people develop more resilience, more emotional regulation skills, and more connectedness, even when things are really, really hard. And, And I believe in this deep truth. And that is that humans can not only survive, but even grow during extraordinary challenges, partly because it taps into one of our deepest core truths about our existence, which is that we are the most adaptable species. We have the capacity to survive in any environment on the globe, And we are able to change course at a moment's notice. That doesn't mean it's always easy or comfortable, but that this is a part of what makes humans humans, is our resilience and adaptability. And I definitely saw this during the last few years. And although for most modern North Americans, uh, this felt like a completely new challenge, we You know, we don't really, we haven't had a modern pandemic of this scale in over a hundred years. If one reads the course of history and keeps up with the World Health Organization's reports, you know, you can see that pandemics and epidemics and viral and bacterial invaders have really always threatened our lives and communities. And we're always adjusting to these new these new threats. In fact, one of my favorite novels, Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, addresses the challenges of love when the world around you is uncertain and filled with images of death. I read that novel years and years ago. It's a Marquez is a Colombian author and the, the novel is full of magical realism. And it's, it's both this interesting look at how people cope with safety and uncertainty, but also the comings and the goings of love. And the novel really focuses on the expansiveness of the human condition, that we have always had to learn how to choose love and connection in spite of, and actually because of these hardships. And so in the novel, cholera, which is a disease that can be fatal within hours, even among healthy people, is not a character so much as a mysterious force that affects its lover's choices, namely, and I think relevantly, chasing that sometimes elusive state we call safety. Now, entertain me for a moment. I'm going to change. I'm going to digress momentarily. So in French, the word for orgasm is la petite mort, 
which the literal translation is little death. And I personally think that that's a part of what makes the romance languages and cultures so sexy, which I think you're thinking, what in the heck? How does that correlate? But what it is, is that they have a deep understanding of the death and life cycles. And they don't push away these realities, but instead they accept them as an invitation to live life fully, to really embody one's emotions and one's heart, one's truest desires. And this ability to fully feel one's emotions without hurting yourself or others is the biggest determinant of the trajectory of our relationships. There is a pretty pernicious myth and fantasy out there about love that was also tested pretty rigorously over the last couple of years. Let me see if you know it. That is that once we find love, life somehow becomes easier. Now, while I agree with that to some extent, I think that life is definitely better lived in companionship and in in community and that humans generally do better with others. That was actually a part of the huge pain of the pandemic is that we were so isolated. But what I'm talking about here is this sort of magical thinking that people have around love, which is that, you know, once I... Mm, find somebody to date. Then once I find somebody to have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a partner or whatever, then it'll be all good. Oh, once we get engaged. Oh, once we get married. Once this, once it, right? And it's always to the next stage of the relationship. There's this idea of, you know, I'll be happy and conflict-free when. And there is that happily ever after fairy tale, And that once you find somebody you're compatible with, right, that you have the same interests and the same, you know, sleep cycles and all these different things, that you will not have strife, conflict, or passing existential despair. Now, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I think the heart of it definitely remains. And you can see it in people's sort of obsessions about their relationship status. Now, but that that myth is definitely one of addictive fantasy because it requires that we not feel. And I say addictive because the heart of addiction is numbing, right? There's this feeling of I'm going to numb myself not to feel. And so then in that sense, in that very real sense, We become addicted to the idea of what a relationship will feel like. And if there's one thing that COVID-19 did, it made us feel things. It tested our ability to both feel and then deal with our feelings, which then tested, reshaped, and altered our relationships in ways that can never really be undone. Now... I'm really here to change the conversation around why and how we love. We love because we must. We can't not love. When I hear people say that they are not interested in relationship, I don't know what they're talking about because that is impossible as a human creature. We love because we are human. 
It is a part of what makes us human. And because it helps us both survive the inevitable challenges of life, and it helps us grow into more of who we are to become. We literally do not become who we are in isolation. Even people who are working alone right? As adults, right? We can think of like, I do my work alone and then I do this and then I hang out with people. But even when we are quote alone, the very foundations of who we are was shaped in the context of relationship. Our need for love is the same as our need for water, food, and shelter. But the challenge comes in as how to love well. And loving well requires that we both adapt and attune to both the truth of ourselves, right? What our body is feeling and others, other bodies around us accurately. And I think the ongoing challenge of the pandemic was that everyone around us was mostly living in their lizard brain. That's my affectionate phrase for the amygdala, (laughs) which is the part of a brain responsible for fight, flight, or freeze. Quite frankly, it was pretty hard to stay calm and centered. It was tiring to stay present, and it was exhausting to deal with the constant changes. And it was sometimes just really taxing to feel all of the things. And most of us couldn't just do what we did before to cope. There was quite literally no escape. I remember some weeks I just sat with clients and and let them cry, you know, and then gently, compassionately offered them the safety of our relationship to begin exploring other options. When the pandemic first began, I remember being quite worried about the children particularly the children whose abuse would now not be reported to the authorities because they weren't seeing their teachers. And I was also worried about the women. I mean, there was a bit of a personal piece in there too. The women were expected to shoulder the burdens of the children's schooling and care alongside their work. It is estimated that the pandemic set gender equality back an entire generation. And that statistic is sobering and and sad. But then I thought of the men and my own man whose identity rests in keeping their families safe. But this time it was against an unknown and an invisible threat. So that meant it kept their nervous system in a perpetual state of vigilance that could never be discharged through the, quote, fight. Racial and economic disparities became more visible as we watched the very real way that wealth and whiteness literally protects some from the worst consequences of the pandemic, from being able to work from home to the ability to purchase a Peloton to access to health care. My mom is a second grade teacher in one of the poorest communities in Central California. And the obstacles that she described some of her children had to overcome to attend even part of a Zoom meeting, I mean, just just make you cry. Um, It's just so, so hard. And so the pandemic really highlighted a lot of the 
privilege that so many of us just really don't even see because we take it such for granted. But even with all of that, and I'll continue back to my mom's classroom because I think it's a beautiful story. She says this year, so in 2020, it was all Zoom, but in the fall of 2021, she was able to have her classroom again. And she said, all the kids, all they wanted to do was talk, 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 talk. (laughs) And these are little second graders who hadn't been in a classroom for a year and a half. And even though they're testing far behind and they're academically behind, my mom says that she's just been letting them talk, talk, talk. (laughs) And she is letting them do the work they need to do in order to heal their development, their social brains, and to connect, to reconnect with their peers. And I know that she is not the only teacher that is setting aside rigorous academic standards to just let the kids heal. And her story is just one of millions of helpers around the country of people adjusting expectations, being flexible, shifting, adapting, and saying, okay, now what? So this thing has happened. Now how can we heal? Now how can we adjust? When I was in supervision as an MFT, I had a wonderful supervisor, Dr. Charles House, and he taught me one of the most important lessons I ever learned as a new healer. I came to him with all sorts of booky questions and he, he would always simplify it for me. And he said, help your clients feel safe. That's it. That's, that's number one. And so I did. I did my best to help my clients feel safe. And I still have that about me whenever I meet with a new client. And just uh, any client. That is, that is the essence of how people get better. And also coincidentally, that's actually how all relationships work. We feel connected and happy when we feel safe. Safety is the basis of the relationship. And then... Just beyond safety, we also feel connected when we feel seen, when our individual needs and boundaries can be seen and honored and validated. And so the degree to which you are able to help your partner feel safe and seen and that feeling is mutual is usually the degree to which couples report a satisfying relationship. And so the couples who did this well during the pandemic are quite frankly likely to survive a lifetime together because they were able to identify the threat as being out there rather than inside the sanctuary of their own home, right? And so that's that's a key thing that I see over and over with couples and in families is that they, they fail to develop this sense that you are my safe person. And when they are fighting or there's conflict, what's happening is that the person is saying, you are not safe. You are the threat that I must protect myself against. You are the saber-toothed tiger. I'm sure many of you can identify this in, in yourselves and in your families. So how do we learn to feel more safe at home and in our closest relationships? 
when those are often the place of the most hurt, right? Because it's a conflicting thing within the nervous system. That's why conflict with our partner is so profoundly painful is because this is the person that is supposed to be your safe place. And yet this is the person who is activating your amygdala the most, This is why there is such a body tension when we are in conflict with a partner. And so what I would say is that crises like this, like the pandemic, often reveal underlying traumas or ungrieved losses. I worked with many people who had ignored their, quote, stuff for decades, only to have COVID reveal it in a way that they could no longer ignore. And so working to heal these wounds was an unforeseen gift of the pandemic. Attachment wounds learned in the earliest years of life were revealed during this time. Career losses, family issues, and differences and boundaries were forced to be discussed frankly and directly in ways that they hadn't been before. And now back to the lovers from Love in the Time of Cholera. Florentino Arisa and Fermina Daza fell in love as youths, but Fermina chose the safety of her doctor husband and not the truth of her heart, Florentino. And so upon the death of her husband, Florentino finds her again and declares his undying love. And At the end of the novel, the two lovers end up on a ship together, needing to quarantine upon their arrival due to some cholera cases on the ship. Now, I know that if I feel like if I'm the only one struggling with something, I feel pretty hopeless, frustrated, sad, ashamed. (laughs) And so my hope is that we open the conversation around what it is to love and to love well so that we can learn from each other. And so thank you to the artists and the poets for being brave and sharing their hearts with us first (laughs) so that we can live in a more connected world. And so I wanted to share with you all the last passage from Marquez's book uh, in hopes that you feel a little less alone in your struggles with love. So the captain of the ship that they are quarantining on says this. The captain looked at Fermina and saw on her eyelashes the first glimmer of wintry frost. Then he looked at Florentino Arisa, his invincible power, his intrepid love, and he was overwhelmed by the belated suspicion that it is life more than death that has no limits. And how long do you think we can keep up this goddamn coming and going? He asked. Florentino Ariza had kept his answer ready for 53 years, seven months, and 11 days and nights. Forever, he said. Forever, says Florentino. That's how long we'll continue learning to love. That's how long we'll continue keeping up this goddamn coming and going. (laughs) Whether it's cholera, COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, whatever your challenge is, my deepest hope in humanity is our propensity to love. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.